Well, today our scripture text is from Psalm 119, and my intent is to preach through the entire uh, psalm uh, of 119. It's a very long psalm, but uh, we'll take it one bite at a time. And today, I just want to provide an introduction to the psalm. So as an overview to Psalm 119, I I want to read verses 97 through 104. So please stand with me for the reading of God's holy word, Psalm 119, 97 through 104. Oh, how I love your law. It is my meditation all the day. You, through your commandments, make me wiser than my enemies, for they are ever with me. I have more understanding than all my teachers, for your testimonies are my meditation. I understand more than the ancients, because I keep your precepts. I have restrained my feet from every evil way, that I may keep your word. I have not departed from your judgments, for you yourself have taught me. How sweet are your words to my taste, sweeter than honey to my mouth, though your precepts Through your precepts, I get understanding. Therefore, I hate every false way. Let's pray. O Holy Spirit of God, please illuminate us to your word now as we hear it. Teach us, convict us, reprove us, build us, and strengthen us in faith by it now. In Jesus' name, amen. You may be seated. Well, Psalm 119 focuses on the word of God and God's law and the psalmist's response to this in his life. And really to give us a full-orbed overview, I want to read a few more passages from this psalm to give us some insight. And what I'd like you to do as I'm reading these, just a few verses from the psalm, is listen to how the psalmist views the truth of God. Verse 24 Your testimonies are also my delight and my counselors. Verse 27, make me understand the way of your precepts, so I shall meditate on your wonderful works. Verse 60, I made haste and did not delay to keep your commandments. Verse 72, the law of your mouth is better to me than thousands of coins of gold and silver. Verse 143, Trouble and anguish have overtaken me, yet your commandments are my delights. Amen. Well, I've taken a slightly different approach with the notes today, and you can see them there. If There's more in the back if you didn't grab one, but hopefully they can be used by all ages. I have kind of a high-level outline of the sermon that we'll be going through with some corresponding graphics for the children. And let's uh, just jump right into an introduction again of Psalm 119. Psalm 119, as many of you might know, is just an incredible portion of Scripture. It's the longest psalm, and it's organized into 22 sections. And each of those sections is given a letter from the 22 letters of the Hebrew alphabet, and each each section contains eight verses. So at first, the focus of Psalm 119 appears to be on God's Word. And that's what it's well known for. You might remember verse 105, for your word is a lamp to my feet and a light to my path. However, with some deeper study, you'll see that the overarching theme of Psalm 119 is on God's law. 
And of course, his word is one description or facet of that law. In fact, there are nine primary words. If you go through the whole psalm, you'll see nine primary words to describe the facets of God's law. And those words include law, judgments, testimonies, commandments, his word, statutes, precepts, truth, and his way. These are all descriptive words, and they all have slightly different meanings, and we're going to dive into those as we go through Psalm 119. Now, the other thing is, some have viewed Psalm 119 as repetitive, that it's, it's, it's the same thing over and over again, but it, in fact, actually has significant depth and, and variation, and it's very instructive to the Christian to possess a right view of God's law. I want to read to you uh, what Spurgeon said regarding this point. Some have said that in it, Psalm 119, there is an absence of variety, but that is merely an observation of those who have not studied it. I have weighed each word and looked at each syllable with lengthened meditation, and I bear witness that this sacred song has no tautology or repetition in it, but it's charmingly varied from beginning to end. Its variety is that of a kaleidoscope. From a few objects of boundless variation is produced. In the kaleidoscope, you look once, and there is a strangely beautiful form. You shift the glass a very little, and to another shape, equally delicate and beautiful, as it is before our eyes, so it is here. And so, we've mentioned, brothers and sisters, how important it is that we don't just read the Word of God, right? But that we study it. We meditate on it. We consume it. We, we, we wrestle it, wrestle with it, as it were, and we ponder it, and we let it get deep inside of our soul so that two-edged sword of the word will cut us to the quick and be the discerner of our hearts. Well, with that, with that overview, let us move on to our second topic and consider really the subject at hand, the law of God. What would you say is a typical view of the law of God? Well, unfortunately, the law of God is not that highly viewed in our culture today. And even in large segments of Christianity, it's viewed as archaic, no longer applicable, unusable, contradictory, and graceless. But perhaps the most significant challenge with receiving God's law is a wrong view of it. If we have a wrong view of God's law, of his gospel, his truth imparted, you'll either reject it or you'll not know what to do with it. I want to read a portion of God's law from Numbers 15. This is actually a carrying out or application of the law from Numbers 15, starting in verse 32. Now, while the children of Israel were in the wilderness, they found a man gathering sticks on the Sabbath day. And to those who found him gathering sticks, brought him to Moses and Aaron and all the congregation. They put him under guard because it had not been explained what should be done to him. Then the Lord said to Moses, the man must surely be put to death. All the congregation shall stone him with stones outside the camp. So... As the Lord commanded Moses, all the congregation brought him outside of the camp and stoned him with stones, and he died. Now, many Christians today will read that and say, I I don't know what to do with that. That's very strong 
we're going to stone a man for picking up sticks on Saturday. And so it's very important, as you can see, that you understand and view this law rightly, his word, why he gave the law, the purpose of the law, so that we can view it rightly. And perhaps the biggest challenge for Christians is not rightly understanding the gospel and its connection to the law, which reads, leads to a wrong view of God and salvation, to the point where numerous churches have actually disregarded the Old Testament altogether. When I first arrived at the Air Force Academy on June 20th, 1994, I was given this little book, and I didn't know what it was. I eventually thought it was a Bible, but it actually wasn't. It had parts of the Bible in it. It was a small book that had the New Testament and Psalms and Proverbs in it. And while I'm glad and I think it's good that the United States government is issuing the parts of the Word of God to a thousand new recruits, it's dangerous. Because we cannot separate the word of God in that way. It's implying maybe that only the New Testament is really what's needed. Or somehow maybe it's a little more acceptable and politically tolerable. But this is a very dangerous idea and certainly has contributed to a wrong view of the law of God and his word. Romans 6.14 is actually often used as a proof text for such a position. It says... For sin shall not have dominion over you, for you are not under law, but under grace. In response, many Christians will declare, I have no need for God's law. I'm under grace. And therefore, the words of Psalm 119 can seem very foreign. When he says, oh, how I love your law. It is my meditation all the day. And this has resulted not only in a misunderstanding of the gospel truth, but also how Christians should view God's law and thereby live. J.I. Packer, author of Knowing God, which some of the ladies are reading, put it this way in 1962. Listen. The root of our trouble, putting it quite plainly, seems to be that we, can ne- we neither know or care much about the law of God. On the one hand, we do not give ourselves to studying and applying the law in the way that our evangelical forefathers did. Our neglect of the Old Testament in particular bears witness to this. On the other hand, our thinking, unlike theirs, has a lawless tinge. There is an antinomian streak running through it. We act as if our freedom from the law has made it a matter of comparative unimportance to whether we keep the law in daily life or not. We appear to care more for right faith than we do for right living. We show a greater concern to be orthodox than to be upright. We seem to be more anxious to know the truth than we are to adorn it by our behavior. We are, it appears, more interested in feeding our own souls than in doing good to our neighbors. We lap up the doctrinal chapters of the the epistles, but we skate over the ethical ones. Our Lord accused the Pharisees of antinomianism, telling them they had overlooked the weightier demands of the law, justice, mercy, and good faith. Would he not have reason to bring a similar accusation against us? Here, then, is the root cause of our present moral flabbiness. We have neglected God's law. With that in mind, let's move to our third point, and let's consider, well, then, what is a right view of God's law and the gospel? 
Now, we see in Scripture there are three uses of God's law, and it's good to review these from time to time. You might be familiar with them, but it's important. It's important particularly that children understand this. So, the first purpose of the law is to be like a mirror, you could think of, and reflect to us both the perfect righteousness of God and the sinful depravity of our hearts. The law gives us the knowledge of the heinousness of sin, showing us our need for salvation. It drives us to Christ like a schoolmaster and causes us to run to him with repentance and faith. Secondly, the second use of the law is for the restraint of evil. And while the law itself, of course, cannot change hearts, it can serve to protect the righteous from the unjust. And so the law can, to some extent, it can inhibit lawlessness by its threats of punishment, especially when backed by a civil code that administers punishment for proven offenses. The third use of the law is to reveal to reveal what's pleasing to God. The, the law guides believers on how we can love our Heavenly Father. And this is really the most crucial function for the born-again believer because it serves as an instrument to the people of God of how we can give him honor and glory. And of course, this is the, the law of the word that Christ uses in, in John fourteen fifteen. If you love me, obey my commands, for it shows us how we can love our God. And so we really see the gospel reflected here, even in the uses of the law and throughout the use of the law. First, the law is used to, to condemn us It holds up our sin next to God's perfect holiness and righteousness. And by the power of God, it convicts us. It quickens us, shows us our depravity and our uncleanliness, how we're dead in our sins, and we're in desperate need for salvation. Yet we read in Psalm 119, Oh, how I love your law. So here's a question. How is it that the Christian can love the very law That condemns him. Well, our scripture reading today was from Romans 7. And so we're going to take a look there in depth to understand this. But as you turn there, just remember, there's no merit in striving for the law to save ourselves, is there? Rather, the law condemns us and tells us it's impossible to perfectly keep the law. We break the law continually. We constantly fall short of perfection. And that's what sin is, right? We, we read in what our, our catechism in question 14. Sin is any want of conformity unto or transgression of the law of God. So we have both sins of commission, but also sins of, of omission. When we break one of God's commandments, we sin. But also when we don't do something God calls us to, we sin. So we're never walking in perfection, are we? One of my favorite questions that's asked at the CPC elder floor examination in front of all the elders at the, of the denomination, usually a man will ask, when did you last sin? And of course, that can be a difficult question to answer. But where most of us fail is not necessarily in our sins of commission, commission, although we, we do sin there, but it's in our sin of omission. We are called to love the Lord our God with all of our heart, soul, mind, and strength all the time. So, are you doing that right now? How about half an hour ago? How about five hours ago? Do you see the law is putting upon us 
this perfection. And so for the Christian, this moral law that is constantly condemning the Christian is the same law that is constantly driving him to Christ. Amen. We want that. Blessed is he who is poor in spirit, in poverty over his sins. Jesus said this is blessed to be in this state. The law that reflects the sinner's wicked heart is is also displaying to us and bringing us to awareness of the wrath of God, save the work of Jesus Christ. This is our state. Blessed are we because we're poor over our sins. And in this way, you can see how the law is this sort of divine device of God. It keeps the Christian in constant dependency upon Christ. It's God's mean to bring us to that state to taste his grace and goodness because we see that without him, we're dead. We're dead men. We're left like a dead fish on the beach, dead in our trespasses. That's how we're described. And through this, we're driven more and more to see with eyes of faith our need for Christ. So no law, no life. This is the gospel, that while the law condemns us, it drives us to Christ. But is condemnation our position in Christ? No, it's not. Remember Romans 8.1. There is therefore now no condemnation to those who are in Christ Jesus, who do not walk according to the flesh, but according to the Spirit. For the Spirit, for the law of the Spirit of life in Jesus Christ has made me free from the law of sin and death. Now, to understand this more clearly, let's take a deep look at Romans 7. And I want to start in verse 7. You're welcome to follow along as we pull apart this passage a bit. Verse 7 What shall we say then? Is the law sin? Certainly not. On the contrary, I would not have known sin except through the law. For I would not have known covetousness unless the law had said, you shall not covet. So this is the first use of the law, right? The the law exposed to us sin. Verse 8, but sin taking opportunity by the commandment produced in me all manner of evil desire. For apart from the law, sin was dead. I was alive once without the law. But when the commandment came, sin revived and I died. What is Paul saying here? The Apostle Paul is saying he used to live and be alive in a way. And remember, as a, as, a, as a very faithful Jew, but he effectively was not too worried about his sin. He wasn't understand, understanding the depth of the law. And then by God, by the quickening of the Spirit, Through the law, sin revived. It showed him he was a sinner. And so much so, seeing that he was to the point of being now dead in his sins. Paul said, I died. I died to my former self, the legalist, that man who was trying to be saved by law keeping. Verse 10, and the commandment which was to bring life, I found to bring death. And so there it is, another use of the law. It's meant to bring us life to glorify God. But first, it reveals our death. It shows us our depravity and rebellion against God. Then in verse 11, For sin, taking occasion by the commandment, deceived me, and by it it killed me. Therefore the law is holy, and the commandment holy and just and good. The law 
awakens us, as it were, to our sin. It keeps us in constant dependency upon Christ for life. And so the Christian loves the law, driving us to Christ, then showing us how to live and how to glorify our God. This is a blessed law. Amen? I want to conclude this portion with a quote from uh, the Bible teacher, John Gershner. I think he says it very well. Listen here. The remaining sinner in the Christian, or you could think of it the old man, the remaining sinner in the Christian hates the moral law, which nevertheless condemning him keeps bringing him to the Savior. But the saint in the Christian, or the new man in Christ, loves the moral law because it's the expression of the beloved Lord who saves him. Therefore, you cannot love Christ without loving his law. Because that's what the law is. It's the very nature, character. It's the excellency and the fullness of Christ. You see, if you sing, Jesus, I love you, then you also have to sing, O Lord, I love thy law. If you hate the law, you will hate Christ. If you love Christ, you will love his law. It's just as Jesus said in John 14, If you love me, keep my commandments. Jesus is giving us a picture here of the Christian. The one who loves me will love my commandments and keep them. These go hand in hand. Well, that brings us to our next point. That Jesus is the embodiment of the law. Jesus is the embodiment of the law. What is Christ's connection to the law? Have you thought of that? Well, you might recall, at the, towards the beginning of the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus makes a really profound statement about the law and himself in Matthew 5, starting in verse 17. Let me read that. Do not think that I came to destroy the law or the prophets. I did not come to destroy, but to fulfill. For assuredly, I say to you, till heaven and earth pass away, not one jot or tittle will by no means pass from the law until all is fulfilled. Whoever therefore breaks the least of one of these commandments and teaches men so shall be called least in the kingdom of heaven. But whoever does and teaches them shall be called great in the kingdom of heaven. For I say to you that unless your righteousness exceeds the righteousness of the scribes and Pharisees, you will by no means enter the kingdom of heaven. Is Jesus against the law of God? No. Did he, did he come to abolish the law of God? Or to fix something in it so that Numbers 14 is more politically correct? No, no. The law is perfect. It always has been and it always will be. Rather, Jesus came to fulfill the law. Children, think about what that means. What does it mean to fulfill something? To understand that, we've got to go back to the beginning. Actually, it was mentioned by Pastor Schwiso this morning. Remember, Genesis 3.15, I will put enmity between you and the woman and between your seed and her seed. He shall bruise your head and you shall bruise his heel. And so we see Jesus fulfilled this promise, this gospel proclamation from the very beginning. Jesus is that one. He is that Satan head crusher. And so this was promised. He has come to fulfill what? The law. God's truth. And so Jesus is saying in Matthew 5, the law and the prophets, what were they pointing to? To him. They were pointing to him. 
The law is perfect, and it was perfectly anticipated and declared Jesus would be the one to fulfill it. So Jesus is not at odds with the law. There's no reason to throw away the Old Testament. He's the fulfillment of it. And this statement in Matthew 5, I I encourage it for further study because there's so much depth to it. It tells us so much more about the law of God, doesn't it? It's perfect. It's timeless. It's universal. It's unchangeable. It's relevant. And what else does it tell us? It's insufficient for salvation. Now, these attributes of the moral law are very, very important, aren't they? Because we must know them. We must understand them. We must understand God's word because it is under attack. We must know where we stand confidently today. Do you believe that the law of God is perfect and unchangeable and timeless? Do you believe that? Because you will be challenged on that. Because the Bible is being distorted. Now, we, we see that not only through the innumerable various versions of the Bible, but also this is being preached by many teachers, a distortion of the word of God. The Bible today is seen and even spoken to as being open-ended and free for new interpretation. They view the Bible as an edible text. The timeless truths of God, it seems, are just being overwritten to conform to cultural realities and to our new understandings of God's commands. Now, some teachers even go so far to create a whole new idea of who Christ is and why he came. And then, according to this increasingly popular view, the Bible is no longer the eternal, unchanging, timeless law of God. Rather, it's a new truth, truth defined by community and culture, they say. Rob Bell, you might remember that name, over ten years ago, he advocated for this position, saying that, quote, Christ has given us the keys to the kingdom to make new interpretations of his word in our day and age. He called Christians to re-image Christianity, saying it was God's intent that we edit, alter, modify, and conform it to our understanding of Scripture in our modern age, based on the opinions of the community. You can see where that's got us. He concluded that, for example, although in times past God prohibited homosexuality, In our day and age, the community can now overrule such an incorrect notion and free us to accept a new morality. Well, unfortunately, this view is still lingering today and growing, even in churches. So, if you stand for the law of God and his word, and you declare it to be timeless and perfect and unchangeable, you must know why. And you must Stand resolutely by faith because you will be challenged on it. We must know our God and stand for his truth. Now, on the other side of the road, or in the other ditch, as it were, we must remember God's intent for his law. It is insufficient for salvation. Cannot be saved by the law. 
Because while God's law is this instrument to drive us to Christ, to restrain evil, and to clearly show us how we can love our God by obedience, it left to itself can never, ever save you. Law-keeping will never save you. This, is, this was Jesus' primary teaching to the Pharisees, wasn't it? And we see this clearly in Romans 8. As we read before, there is therefore now no condemnation to those who are in Christ Jesus who do not walk according to the flesh, but according to the Spirit. For the law of the Spirit of life in Christ Jesus has made me free from the law of sin of death. For what the law could not do, and that it was weak through the flesh, God did by sending his own Son in the likeness of sinful flesh. On account of sin, he condemned sin in the flesh, that the righteous requirement of the law might be fulfilled in us who do not walk according to the flesh, but according to the Spirit. Amen. Now, this brings us to our final point in our application for today. The law of God and you. How are you going to engage God's law? In other words, here's God's law. What are you going to do with it, Christian? Well, we know it's been given to us by God as a precious gift. It deeply reveals to us, as we've talked about, our need for Christ, and we should love it. It drives us to Christ, but it also shows us how we can love our God and walk with him in his way. Well, we know that from the word, having a right view of God and his law takes in a very, very important thing, and that is faith, a working of the Spirit of God. A right view of the law of God is something the natural man cannot see or receive. Let me read from 1 Corinthians 2, starting in verse 13. These things we also speak, not in words which man's wisdom teaches, but which the Holy Spirit teaches, comparing spiritual things with spiritual. But the natural man, this is the unregenerate man, does not receive the things of the Spirit of God, for they are foolishness to him. Nor can he know them, because they are spiritually discerned. But he who is spiritual judges all things, yet he himself is rightly judged by no one. For who has known the mind of the Lord, that he may instruct him? But we have the mind of Christ. Faith. Faith is required to loveth thy law. Jesus said in Revelation, do you remember what Jesus would say at the beginning or towards the end of each of his words to the seven churches? He says, he who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. Ears to hear. Not not these ears. Spiritual ears to hear, to understand what God is saying. Right? These are ears that are, you could say, set apart. Because Because of who we are, we have a position in Christ, a position in life. You've given the position of control of your life to him. You're not in control anymore. Your life is not your own. You were bought with a price. Remember, your position is that you are in Christ. Confidently, be there, be in Christ. And one of the most beautiful things is also that Christ is in me right? You are in Christ and Christ is in us. 
by the working of the Holy Spirit. And this is so powerful. This is that, that two-way abiding in Christ that we see in John 15. He says, I am the vine, you are the branches. He who abides in me and I in him bears much fruit. For without me, you can do nothing. If anyone does not abide in me, he is cast out as a branch and is withered. And they gather them and throw them into the fire and they are burned. And then, what's amazing, think of this abiding in the vine. And then just a couple verses later, we see the connection to God's law. Verse 9, as the Father loved me, I also have loved you and abide in my love. If you keep my commandments, you will abide in my love just as I have kept my Father's commandments, abide in his love. There it is, law and love together. If you want to abide in the love of Jesus, then you'll keep his commandments and you'll love his law. And so, if you are somebody out there that is in Christ, that is your position. I am in Christ. And Christ is in you, then you see rightly you discern with understanding, with, with, with ears that hear and eyes of faith that see and one that lives by the Spirit. As Romans 8 says, for those who live according to the flesh set their mind on the things of the flesh, but those who live according to the Spirit on the things of the Spirit. To be carnally minded is death, but to be spiritually minded is life and peace because the carnal mind is enmity against God For it is not subject to the law of God, nor can indeed it be. So then, those who are in the flesh cannot please God. So, don't try to engage or live out or perceive the truth of God and his law in a carnal way. But only approach it in a faith-filled way. And that's really the original word there, echo, as we talk about the mind of Christ. We talked about... The mind of Christ in 1 Corinthians 2. It means to really hold or you have the possession of a right view of the things of God. Just like those who could understand Christ's parables, right? Approach the the law of God with the mind of Christ, with a faith-driven right perspective. And we will see it as a tremendous gift of God. To receive Christ's commands and to walk with God in this Christian life, we must remember those words of Hebrews 11. But without faith, it is impossible to please him. For he who comes to God must believe that he is and that he is a rewarder of those who diligently seek him. Love God and you will love his law. For you'll view it for the purposes that he's given. So we abide together in Christ. Abide in the vine, stay close to him, and let's just stay far away from the things that are against God and his law. So, one of the questions, I think, a very applicable question that you could ask yourself, particularly as you're going through life or you're making a decision, is say, whose law or rule of life do I want to follow? Because you will follow a law or a rule of life. You will follow a pattern. Do you want the culture's law? Do you want the philosophical, secular law of a good TED Talk speaker? Do you want a a political agenda law to be the rule of your life? Or do you want maybe your law that you've come up with? Or do you want the law of the 
one true living God, maker of heaven and earth, maker of Pike's Peak. Do you want to go with his law? It's been there before you, FYI. Will you lean on your own understanding to walk through life? Is that the truth that Proverbs 3 tells us? No. We have to sometimes be humble and say, am I smarter than God? Is my law better than his when he formed the foundations of the earth? Because when we push against God's law, that's kind of what we're saying, isn't it? I think I know better than God. May we be humbled by this. We cannot just be aware of God's law, can we? And we cannot even just have the right view of it, but by faith we must own it, we must love it, we must internalize it, and then live it out. So here's the question that was posed to you last week by Pastor Schwiso in his sermon regarding law keeping. He said, will you go the way of doing things to be saved or go the way of faith? Well, we are to know God's law, to know his word, and yes, we are to memorize it, and we should. We should also soak it in. Let it be in our hearts so much that it just comes out in our words into every decision and effort and engagement you make in this Life. It's a tremendous gift. It's like that beautiful hymn that Stuart Towen Towen wrote. Take your truth and plant it deep within us. Shape and fashion us to your likeness that the light of Christ may be seen today in our acts of love and our deeds of faith. So in closing, how do you view the the law of God? Is it a means to try to get closer to God? Or do you view it as a blessing, as a gift? Because God has shown us how we can love him and have a life that glorifies him, builds his kingdom and expands the gospel. Simply, we love the law because it's our God's law. We recognize that we are only alive by his grace and love and we want to honor him by following his truth we trust him we know our own depravity so we trust in his law more than our ideas and thoughts the law drives us to christ as paul said the law revived sin and showed me showed me and i died realizing i need a savior and so i love the law because it ushers me time and again to christ the way, the truth, and the life. And we see how the law even protects us. It's God's best for us. It's his path through life and is the only way to love him in our lives and to glorify him. May we rejoice in the law of our God. Amen. Let's pray. Oh, Father in heaven, we thank you for your truth for your testimonies, for your commandments, your precepts, your word, your law, and your way that you have given us. Thank you for that even condemning work of the law that drives us to Christ. And then, once we understand that we live under grace through faith, we can then take that law and glorify and love our God. Oh, we thank you for this, Lord. We thank you for this law that you've given us. Teach us this, God, but only by faith.
teach us by faith more and more to have eyes to see and ears to hear this beautiful, eternal, timeless, unchangeable, universal, never-ending truth that you've given your people. We thank you and we praise you in Jesus' name. Amen.